Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So this morning we are uh, find ourselves um, back in Isaiah, and we're looking at Isaiah 63 and 64 this morning. These are an important um, kind of bridge to the final, the final section of the book, which really runs from 65 to 66. And um, we just finished up an extended study of, uh, of the previous three chapters in Isaiah 59 to 63, verse, ultimately verse 6. Isaiah's been expounding upon the crushing defeat of the wicked and at the same time, spending a lot of time and energy devoted to uh, explaining the crowning salvation of the righteous and, and what that's going to look like in the future. And we learned that this God-breathed uh, word from the prophet uh, has this twofold effect uh, upon all who hear it, uh, both confronting sinners who are in rebellion against God and his word, but also at the same time, that word is comforting the saints. We said that um, as we read, especially these chapters that we've just covered, that they confront sinners because Christ, we understand, is coming back to stamp out every uh, remaining vestige of evil and, and wickedness in the world. And, and so uh, they are in this world without hope. But at the same time, as we read uh, this prophetic word, uh, it comforts the saints because Christ is coming back, and, our reward, and his reward is coming with him, as the scripture says, to bless the many that he has made righteous. And so, because we are joined as with Christ, our hearts are encouraged and hopeful that all will be made new. And we said from all of it, from the crushing defeat of the wicked to the crowning salvation of the righteous, that every, uh, everything that God will do in the future has as its appointed end or goal the glory of God. That God's glory is up, uppermost. The entire arc of human history has had and continues to have as, at, as, as its primary goal God's glory, his honor, his worth. Uh, Ephesians 1, Paul says it like this, he's doing all things in terms of redemption to the praise of the glory of his grace. He says it three times in chapter 1. So everything from creation to new creation and all that lies in between reverberates out for the glory of God and, and for his honor. And, and, and not only is it for his honor, but we share in that glory and our, we get to enjoy that glory forever and ever. And so we saw God's glory, if you remember our outline, the final point of our outline was focused on the message and the glory of God in the message that he gives uh, for us. And the, the message for God's people at the end of chapter 62 is this message to pray, that we are to pray for this salvation to come. Uh, he says in, in chapter 62, uh, in verse uh, 6, He says, um, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now, we said in the immediate context that the watchmen that God's referring to here uh, through Isaiah are probably the prophets, both Isaiah and others who would follow who were tasked with speaking God's, God's word to the people, uh, calling them back to covenant faithfulness. But um, even uh, beyond that, their responsibility as, as leaders, spiritual leaders, was, as we're going to see in our text this morning, to intercede for God's people and to plead for them. 
Now, the church, and this is a, a helpful question that was asked to me after service, the church doesn't have prophets like the Old Covenant, uh, Israel did under the Old Covenant. We don't even have prophets like we did in the early uh, part of the New Testament uh, church era because uh, the foundation of the church is built on the apostles and prophets, and when that foundation was laid and the scriptures were, were um, in, uh, written down, then those offices ceased to operate. So, so the question is, um, does that mean that this text, this call for prophets to pray for the future salvation of God's people, does that mean that doesn't apply to us? And I would say that that is not the case. I believe there is an application here for us even today. Because as you look at the New Testament, what does Christ teach his disciples to pray? Right, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we said, what is that prayer? But Christ pleading with us to plead with him that, that he would make all things new. And, and if you look at the Apostle Paul, for example, and you, you read through his letters, how many times does Paul pray for God's people to stand uh, in glory at Christ's coming? He prays that for numerous audiences as he writes, or pray for them to know experientially Christ's love. Or he prays things like that they would be, as he does in Ephesians, that they'd be filled to all the fullness of God, or some variation of that prayer. What are those prayers? But that is, that, is, that is Paul entreating God to come back and to complete the work that he has begun in us by faith. So I think there is ample um, examples in the New Testament that the duty that we share along with these watchmen on the wall that Isaiah references here at the end of chapter 62 is this responsibility and duty of, per, of persistent prayer for the Lord to make good on all that he's promised, all that he has made available to us with regard to our future salvation. This is our ceaseless task. There's a sense of urgency in these final verses of chapter 62. And, and so he says we are, to, we are to pray until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. We're to be like toddlers Right? Toddlers, they don't care what mom and dad are doing. They want attention. They're going to get it, right? Toddlers will tug on your pant leg. Toddlers will wave their hands. They are oblivious to everyone and everything else because they want, they want attention. And so you and I should pepper the throne of grace and plead with God, come Lord Jesus. Right? This, is the, this is the example that we see in the scriptures, and, of course, the exhortation here from Isaiah himself. And it's this message for us to be about the task of persistent prayer that is now going to, as we turn to chapter 63, be modeled to us by Isaiah in the last part of chapter 63 and all of 64. From chapter 63 in verse 7 to 64 verse 12, what we are reading is basically one long prayer to God by Isaiah on behalf of God's people. And this prayer, I think, is instructive to us on a, on a number of levels. It, it teaches us several things. First, it models, as you read through this, it models well-rounded prayer. There are, there, we should think about prayer, and this is a helpful analogy that was given to me by my professor in seminary, is to think of it like segments of an orange. Um, 
There are different aspects to prayer. There are different components to it, but it's one thing. So prayer will sometimes uh, encapsulate praise and thanksgiving. We acknowledge God's mighty acts and give thanks for his deeds. Uh, Another aspect of prayer, though, is this um, this, um, work of affirmation, which is basically reiterating back to God what is true about God. So affirmation becomes a a, a vital part of prayer. Uh, And uh, another aspect of prayer is um, intercession, where we are praying for the needs of others. And we we ask on behalf of others that God would fulfill certain requests. Or uh, another additional aspect of prayer is petition, where we are praying for um, not just uh, others' needs, but now we're praying for our own personal needs. Or uh, another aspect of prayer is confession, where we, we acknowledge our sin before God. Um, and there are others that you know sometimes get categorized in there, but those are kind of the big ones. And so my point is a well-rounded prayer life, like a, like a well-prepared, well-prepared meal, isn't going to be one-dimensional. We've all had an entree at a restaurant that was... Uh, flat, right? It, it, it was just saltier than the Dead Sea, or it was super greasy because it's just way too much oil, or maybe it's a dessert that is just like sickeningly sweet. Um, and when that happens, when we eat a meal like that or enjoy dessert like that, we know this isn't good. We, we, we eat it, and sometimes it's okay, but we realize at the end of the day, this isn't good. And for some of us, truth be told, that's what our prayer life is like. It's one-dimensional. In our prayers, what we're doing all the time is just endless petitions for personal needs. Or we fall into a rut of mindless repetition of a, of a handful of spiritual uh, phrases, but those phrases have long since been rinsed of actual meaning and significance. It's like that meal that's too salty or that meal that's too greasy. It's, it'll, it does get the job done, but it's not good. It's not good. But as you look at men and mature men and women of the Bible, and you read their prayers recorded for us on the pages of Scripture, what you realize is that th- these are well-rounded prayers. These are prayers that are they're rich and they're diverse and they move seamlessly from one aspect of prayer to another as you read through them. And that is what we're going to see Isaiah doing in the text that we're looking at this morning. So, so one uh, benefit of um, uh, what's instruction uh, of, of reading the scriptures is to see that, that it make us well-rounded in our prayers. Secondly, this prayer that we're going to look at this morning, it models spirit-led prayer for our future salvation. It models a spirit-led prayer for our uh, asking God for our future salvation because Isaiah has his finger on the pulse of God. And, and especially as it relates to future events, what God is going to do at the end of the age, our ears ought to perk up when we hear him pray about those things uh, as, as one of God's watchmen on the wall. We want to ask ourselves, what is he praying for? Uh, what, how does he describe our future salvation? What does he reveal about our, our present condition as he speaks about it? Um, what's the tone and, and the timber of his prayer in terms of its shape? These are all things we should seek to understand and imitate if we want to pray in step with God's will. Pray to the mark. And the third thing that this prayer does that instructs us, I think, is it models humble dependence on God. It models 
humble dependence on God. Isaiah's prayer here, as you read through it, as we're going to work through it in just a moment, exemplifies lowliness. It exemplifies trust in God and his promises. God's eternal character, his faithfulness, his sovereign power are all front and center, which tell us that Isaiah is truly, truly resting on the suffering servant's work and his atoning sacrifice. When we meet mighty men and women of God in the scripture, truly humble and walking by faith, then what does that do for us? It encourages us and challenges us to do the same, to follow in their footsteps, to imitate their faith. I'm reminded of the words of Isaiah, excuse me, of Zechariah, the prophet, in his um, prophetic book in chapters 4 and verse 6, and God reminds Zerubbabel, he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is how we are to conduct ourselves. This is how we are to pray. And, and this is what we're going to see modeled for us and instructed in as we look through this, this, prayer, this extended prayer this morning. So there's a lot for us to learn as we, as we look at this prayer and kind of pick it apart. So what's left for us to do? Because in the previous chapters, you think about it, Isaiah's described Christ's crushing defeat of the wicked. He's, he's kind of laid that all out. He's, he's described in great detail the crowning salvation of the righteous that's coming. So what is left for us to do in the in-between time? And the answer that Isaiah gives us in these final chapters is twofold. First, we are to pray for its f- fulfillment, and we are to rest in the promises of God. And that's essentially what's covered in the last four chapters. We are to pray for its fulfillment, and we are to rest in the promises of God. Isaiah is a spiritual leader amongst God's people, and so he naturally embraces this role of intercessor, leading the people in prayer for salvation to be completed. And what he's inviting us to do this morning is to listen in. It's like we're praying with him, to listen in and to... Uh, and to Uh, understand some of the glorious realities that stand behind our persistent prayer for Christ's kingdom to come. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. We can break the whole section down into four parts, and our outline um, is uh, is going to follow. It's alliterated again. (laughs) I did it. The recollection of God's character, we're going to see that in verses 7 to 14 of chapter 63. The request for God's intervention in chapter 63, verse 15 to 64, verse 3. We'll see the root of the problem in chapter 64, verses 4 to 7. And then lastly, in the final verses, five verses, we'll see the repentance from rebellion. So that's kind of a roadmap for where we are headed. But I want to begin this morning... In chapter 63, and I want to look uh, at verses 7 to 14, where we see the recollection of God's character. The recollection, recall of God's character. One of the distinguishing marks of a believer, a true believer, is their heartfelt desire to know and act in step with God's will. That's what we do. And, And that's reflected, then, it ought to be reflected in the way we pray. We want to know God. As believers, I want to, as a believer, I want to know God, and I want to, I want to understand how we're to act. And so we want to, and we want to know him as he truly is, not as we imagine him to be, but as he truly 
is. And that means that our prayers should be filled with praise and thanksgiving for past blessings, and our prayers should be filled with affirmations of who he is, which is exactly what we see Isaiah doing here in verses 7 to 14. Look with me at the text. In chapter 63, verse 7, he says, I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion, and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. And so he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them, and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. There's so much packed in these three verses, but as we listen to Isaiah's prayer, what we hear is Isaiah praising and thanking God and speaking back to God what he knows to be true about his character. That's what's happening in this text. He is, in a sense, telling God about God. (laughs) It's basically what's going on. He's praising God and affirming God for who he is and what he has done. And he starts in, uh, in verse 7 by telling about God's loving kindnesses, his loving kindnesses, his covenant love for his people. You'll notice um, in most translations it's in the plural, which has the effect of kind of magnifying those loving kindnesses, amplifying those loving kindnesses. Isaiah praises God that God's love for his people never wavers, that his love that's poured out is is being poured out in the truest and the fullest sense upon his people. And, And that love is displayed in God's actions, right? He does these things, he says, according to all the Lord has granted us. God's love is, is, is described as super abundant. It is life-giving. It is beneficial. It is according to the great goodness that he has shown to the house of Israel. His love is not only demonstrated in his actions and his beneficial works, but in his compassion. It's, it's, you'll see at the end there, it's according to the abundance of his, excuse me, granted them according to the compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. So he says it twice here, the beginning and the end. Uh, He shows personal pity and sincerity toward his people. God's love is what drives him to identify with his people and believe the best about them and to move toward them in saving power. That's what he says in verse 8. For he said, God, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became, thus he became their savior. You know, as if, and as if all of that isn't more than we deserve, God as our Redeemer has taken on our pitiable spiritual condition and, and made it his own, right? He's taken the burden that we could never carry, and he has carried it upon himself and carried it away. Verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Here, Isaiah specifically recalling God's redeeming Israel out of Egypt, out of of bondage in Egypt in the time of the Exodus, which he says he did out of love and out of mercy. 
You know, up until the cross, the Exodus was by far the most significant proof in the scriptures of God's love and his mercy for his people. I mean, you see it all the time throughout the Old Testament. He, he, he redeemed you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm or something, some variation of that. It's all referring to the Exodus. But, but here's the thing. For us, it pales in comparison to his redeeming love sent to us at the cross. I mean, that was just a foretaste of the love, redeeming love that God would demonstrate in sending his own son into the world to die for our sin and to rise from the grave. So, so all, this, all that to say, Isaiah is telling God here about God. He says, you're the loving one. You're the merciful one. You're the redeeming one. You're the saving one, the compassionate one, the overflowing one with covenant faithfulness. Why is he praising God for these past actions? And why is he affirming God for his holy character? It's, is it because God needs to be reminded of the things that he's done? Is, that, is, it, you know, is, is it because God's ego needs to be kind of built up and, and backfilled because there's some lack in God, some deficiency in his person? Of course, the answer is no. God is not like the gods of this world. He, he, he lacks nothing. He needs nothing from us. If, if we didn't give him an ounce of praise, think about this, he would still be as glorious as he is, has always been from all eternity. So you say, well, then why all this praise? Why all this affirmation? Why do we even have to do this if God doesn't need it, if it doesn't add anything to him? Who's it for? And the answer is it's for us. It's for us. Praise and affirmation. Those aspects of prayer are about remembering who God is. It's for us as well as for him, to honor him. You need to be reminded, I need to be reminded of who God is and what he has done. Look at the beginning of verse 7. In the NAS, it, it's a little confusing, but the, word, the, the verb there at the beginning is, I shall remember the loving kindnesses of the Lord. It's essentially that word. Maybe the ESV has it that way. Maybe some other translations have remember. But that's the point. That's the point. You need to be reminded, I need to be reminded that our God is a God who abounds in loving kindness. Our God is a God who is a mighty redeemer. Our God is a merciful savior. Our God has showered us with abundant goodness. We need to recall those things to keep them in the forefront of our minds all the time. This is, by the way, why we not only pray in the worship service, but sing. Right? We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that basically recall, if you look at the content of them, God's past faithfulness and affirm his righteous character. And, 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 and beyond that, the fact that it, that it honors him when it comes to the, you know, beyond the fact that it honors him coming from lips that are sincere, it reminds us who God is as we sing those things. It instructs us what he has done. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to God. So prayer along with praise and song, are meant to recall God's past faithfulness to our hearts and to our minds. It reminds us of who God is and what he has done for us.
And the reason we have to be reminded is because we always seem to forget. Verse 10, he says, in all their, uh, excuse me, uh, they rebelled, God's people, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and he fought against him. The they in verse 10 is emphatic. You don't see it in the English, but it is. It's essentially saying they of all people turned and forgot. After all that God had done for them, that he just described in verses 7 to 9, you would think that they'd never forget. You would think they would never lose sight of what God has done. And yet, that's exactly what they did. And it's the same for us. You wouldn't think that after all that God has done for us in Christ, that we would forget him. You wouldn't think that after he called us out of spiritual darkness and put his very spirit in our hearts, that we would turn around and forget him. Or even worse, that we would rebel against him. But it happens far far more often than we care to admit. And just like Israel, we feel the absence of his comforting fellowship as he turns away from us. But as we turn our hearts back to God in prayer and remember his holy character, we're reminded once again who God is. And that's what we see him doing here in verses 11 to 14. Then his people remembered the days of old. What days? The days of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make, the, to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness? They did not stumble. As the cattle which goes down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make, an, uh, make for yourself a glorious name. When God opposed Israel and disciplined them for their disobedience, remember we just read about that in Judges, they turned back to him. They cried out to him in pity, and, and he remembered his loving kindnesses, and God, God would shower them with mercy, send a judge, and deliver them. And the string of rhetorical questions here in verses 11 to 13, it's like God is saying, how am I any different than I was then? How am I any, any, any way different? Where is that? I'm right here. He says, where is he? He hasn't gone anywhere. In Israel's past, God never allowed the barrier of their sin to permanently hinder his people. When they faced uncrossable waters at the Red Sea, he says he led them through like a horse walking in open country. When they had no country at all to call their own, God brought them into a promised land and gave them rest on every side. He describes it at the end of verse 14 like cattle that have gone down to the valley to graze peacefully. So what lies here as we read these, uh, these verses, what lies at the foundation of Isaiah's praise and his affirmations in prayer is the unshakable character of God that he is recalled to mind. I'm reminded of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, where God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. It's because that God doesn't change that he is faithful. And, just as, and it's just as true for us today, right, as it was for Israel in that day. Our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Hebrew says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. 
And so when you and I pray, and specifically when you pray for Christ's kingdom to come, let's make sure to to work in focused times of praise and thanksgiving. Let's be careful not to forget to affirm God's character like Isaiah does here so that we can be reminded of who God is and to know his will. Secondly, we see the recollection of God's character, and that gives way in the following verses to the request for God's intervention. The request for God's intervention that picks up in verse 15 and goes all the way through the next chapter in verse 3. And here we see um, another aspect of prayer, one that we're probably a little bit more familiar with, which is intercession. Intercession. Intercession is when you and I request something from God, but do so for other people, right? Pray for me in, I've got surgery coming up next week, or pray for my, um, m- my son or daughter that they would have wisdom in their decision. Pray, you know, pray that the Lord provide what we need for a new job or something, whatever it is. You're then going to the Lord and praying for that other person. Petition is when we pray for things to God for ourselves, uh, and, and we do that plenty well. Both of them have a place in a well-rounded prayer life. It's not that petition's bad or intercession's bad. It's important. They all have a, a, a role to play, but we just want to make sure that we understand that they're distinct and we don't want to get them confused. What we see Isaiah doing here is interceding. He's interceding. He's recalled that God loves his people, that he's merciful, that he's their redeemer, that throughout Israel's history he's remained faithful to them, even though they've so often been unfaithful to him. And so we know then, based on what Isaiah has already said, we know that we can pour out our hearts to him, confident that he he will um, amply supply what is needed. He can do that. And that's exactly what Isaiah starts to do here in this text. He he is starting to, uh, he, he has explained the crowning salvation of the righteous, and he is pleading for God to then make good on that promise. Look at verse 15. He says, look, he's pleading with God, look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways? And harden your hearts from fearing you. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people, possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. This is, if you read this, it's emotional. It's heartfelt, this prayer. And that's how prayer can be at times. In fact, it should be that way at times. Particularly as we see the world around us falling short of what God desires the world to be. Isaiah is pleading with God to return and to reign over what is rightfully his, which is everything. He recognizes that God is our heavenly father. He's created us. uh, and adopted us into his household. And so Isaiah reiterates to God that his people are his servants. We are his holy people. But as he looks around him, as Isaiah looks around him, he he sees the world and it's not the way it ought to be, at least not on the surface. 
And so he says, he says, your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a while. Our adversaries now have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. He's saying, God, if we continue as it looks now in our present condition, that would be practically speaking as if you have forsaken your people. Surely you cannot be content, God, to leave things in their present condition. That's his plea. Now you might look at verse 17 and you say, whoa, what's he saying there? Is God laying the blame at, excuse me, is Isaiah laying the blame at God's feet? And that's not what he's doing here. We need to understand what he's saying. He's simply acknowledging that when the, when the warmth of God's gracious presence pulls back, which it must because God is holy, their cold spiritual deadness reemerges. <clears throat> and so he affirms that not only when God draws near, that it's going to be when God draws near, they will eventually experience the joy of their salvation. And so he's begging God not to leave them to themselves. Like if the sun disappeared out of the uh, solar system, earth would become a frozen rock, right? It's only because of the, the light and the, the energy of the sun that the earth has any life whatsoever. And so it is with us. We have no life apart from God. We have no life apart. If God pulls back, we're dead in the water. And that's all he's acknowledging here. And so he's saying, Lord, don't leave us to ourselves. Return for the sake of your servants and the tribes of your heritage. He's pleading for God to act in a dramatic way. But up to this point, God has not done that. So in beginning of chapter 64, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. It's like Isaiah's rehearsing a past that sadly never happened. He says, if only you'd acted in this way, your adversaries would know your name. If only you'd acted in this way, the nations would tremble. The very foundations of the earth would be shaken like they were at Sinai. What are we to make then of Isaiah's intercession here for God to break into creation and save his people? First, Isaiah's passionate pleading has such an emotional intensity because he has an unswerving confidence in God's absolute sovereignty. He prays with fervent Emotion, because he knows that God can do everything that he's asked at a, without blinking an eye. So in many ways, his asking, the boldness of his asking, exhibits a heart of humble, childlike faith. Like, we don't ask powerless, poverty-stricken, impotent people to do things for us. Right? Who do you ask? You ask people who have influence. You ask people who have resources, you're going to reach out to someone who's capable. The very act of asking demonstrates on some level we believe that person to be helpful to us. And it's the same with God. When we intercede, when we plead with God in prayer to glorify himself and build his church, to hold back the forces of evil, to save sinners, to deliver us from the trials and temptations, we ask because we really believe that he can do that. 
and he has the power to make it happen. Matthew 7, ask, Jesus says, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father who's in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And so the act of asking demonstrates an unswerving confidence in God's sovereignty. Second, as we look at this intercession, Isaiah gives us a good example of asking questions of God in prayer as a way of testing God in the most God-glorifying, respectful way. Malachi 3, verse 10, God says, do what I ask with regard to the tithe. He says, and test me now in this way and see if I will not pour out the windows of heaven on you. So it's almost like God saying, take some shots of the bulletproof glass and see if it cracks. See if it cracks. And of course, when we do that and it holds, what happens? We take a step back and our confidence is that much greater. And that's in a sense what we, see, what we do in prayer as we bang on the doors of heaven with intercessory prayer, we are testing God for his goodness. We are testing the Lord in the, in, the, in the righteous sense of the term. And even if we don't see him answer our prayers in the way that we ask them or in the timing of what we want, nevertheless, our faith is strengthened and God is honored. And so intercession becomes a demonstration of our faith and our trust and a way to put the Lord to the test to show that he indeed is good. Thirdly, as we move through the text, we see the root of the problem in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 64. Part of the reason why Israel in their day and their time was eaten up by the nations like bread was because they were disobedient to God's law. God's people were to walk humbly before him to keep his commandments and statutes, but instead they forsook the Lord and they suffered the penalty of their idolatry. And it wasn't because God was unwilling to bless them or that God was kind of stingy with his grace. That's not the case at all. Look at verse 4. It says, From days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. You meet him with uh, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness in the one who remembers you in your ways. If they would only have approached God on the basis of faith, what Isaiah says here is, you are primed and ready to overwhelm us with your blessings, right? both temporal and eternal. But the reality on the ground was very different for Israel. They had no heart to obey. And God, bound by his own word and his holy character, held them accountable for their disobedience. And so we see, behold, verse 5, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. 
Here we see a third aspect of prayer, and that is confession. Confession. To confess sin is to say the same thing about our sin that God does. Not just with our lips, verbatim, wrote, but in our hearts as well. It's to say the same thing about our sin. It's, the same, it's also to say the same thing about our spiritual condition and our infirmity. And what Isaiah acknowledges here is the human heart is so corrupt, it is so bankrupt spiritually that even our righteous deeds, such as they are, are defiled with sin on some level. And like a leaf in the fall, at the end of the year, they wither and fall off the tree and are blown away. They're worthless eternally. But notice, notice here, Isaiah doesn't minimize their sin as he intercedes for them and, and confesses sin publicly. He doesn't excuse sin. He doesn't redefine sin. What does he do? He admits it. He just owns it. He admits it and he affirms that God has dealt rightly with them over what they have done and they are reaping what they have sown. And this is how you and I confess sin. This is how we are to confess sin to God in prayer. We do that as a body every week as a part of our worship service corporately. But you and I must live lives of confession day by day as we sin and transgress God's laws. We're convicted about our, our, our transgressions and those things that we don't do that we ought to do. We are to make confession a regular part of our walk with God, and we must do that. Listen to David's words in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, he says, was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And he said, you forgave the guilt of my sin. If your spiritual vitality seems like it's evaporated, like water in the heat of summer, one of the first things I would encourage you to do is to take a searching inventory of your heart and ask yourself, are there patterns of sin in my life that I am not acknowledging and confessing to the Lord? Are there, are there sins in my life that I'm holding on to that I need to forsake? And then, rather than minimize them or excuse them or redefine them, we need to confess them. We need to acknowledge them to the Lord. And if that sin involves uh, against other people, we need to seek their forgiveness such that we can have a clean conscience and the Lord can restore the joy of our salvation, like David speaks about here and elsewhere in the Psalms. And part and parcel to confessing sin is repenting of sin in our hearts. It's not just the act of confession. We need to actually repent of sin. And that leads into the fourth and final point, which is the repentance from rebellion, which we see in verses 8 to 12. Look at verse 8. He says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, and we are the clay, and you are potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Repentance is a change of mind so complete with regards to our sin that it results in a change of action. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind that is so complete with regards to our sin that it results in a change of action, change of direction. 
you see it here as Isaiah is praying on behalf of Israel and Judah. He submits to the Lord's lordship, right? He, he, there's a humble acknowledgement that God is the potter and that we are the clay. And whatever he sees fit to do with us is just and it is appropriate because he is God and we are not. So true repentance accepts temporal consequences for sin and acknowledges that to the Lord, submits to whatever, whatever that entails because God is who he is and there's an acknowledgement of that. At the same time, at the same time, Isaiah seeks the Lord's compassion and his forgiveness. So along with a submission to his lordship and the understanding that there's consequences with sin, there is a pleading with God to be compassionate and to forgive. And you see that in verse 9. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look, now all of us are your people. It's interesting, earlier... Um, Earlier, Isaiah has affirmed God's unchangeable character. He says, I don't change. This is who you are. Your loving kindnesses are, are beyond searching out. And that's a good thing because that also means that God's unchangeable, not just in his holiness, but in his grace and mercy, which we need. So even when a true believer sins and a true believer breaks fellowship and stains themselves with the stench of the world, the reality is he, God is still our heavenly father and we're still his beloved children. The nature of our relationship means that regardless of the ups and downs, he neither leaves us nor forsakes us. He may withdraw the joy of our fellowship. His face may be hidden from us for a season. He may discipline us, as Hebrews says, to, for our sanctification. He may even cut our lives short because of our sin, such that we would not fall away, to protect us from falling away. He, but at the end of the day, he will never eternally disown his children. And so Isaiah keeps coming to the throne of grace in, in prayer, and so must we. And that's what we see him doing at the last part of these verses. He goes right back to it. Your holy cities, Lord, have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? He just keeps pleading, keeps praying, right? Because why? God is his father, his heavenly father, and we are his children. And he longs for the day when all that has been broken down will be made whole. That God would save, that God would vindicate his name, that God would vanquish his enemies. He would save his people. Thomas Brooks, famous Puritan, says, Prayer is a shelter to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to the devil. As we listen in on Isaiah's prayer here in these chapters, he invites us to find refuge for our soul. He invites us to offer the sacrifice of praise to God. And he invites us to whip the devil. And the same power that Isaiah wielded in prayer is the same power that you and I can wield if we will simply be disciplined to do it, <laughs> to pray. Um, reminded yesterday in the men's 
fellowship time uh, of James 5. <laughs> Made me think of that. Where James says, therefore confess your sins one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And then he says this, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain in the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. The point of the, of the example isn't that we would control the weather with our prayers. <laughs> the thing that I think we need to zero in on is what he says there. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Think about that. He was not some super, well, he was super spiritual, but he, he wasn't distinctly different from any of us. He was still a sinner who needed the grace of God. Why does he add that detail there? To remind us of the same power in prayer that Elijah had, or that Moses occupied, or that Isaiah had, or Paul or Peter, whomever. That same power is available to us. And so we pray. And so we pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us, the scripture says, bold access to the throne of grace. That we would come into your very presence and to plead and to pray for the needs of others and to confess our sins and to see cleansing and forgiveness to affirm all that we know to be true about you, to remind ourselves of your holy character, your faithful deeds, your loving kindnesses, plural, that you've poured out in our lives. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would look around you in this world and you would see, Lord, so much, there's so much that dishonors you. And our hearts are grieved. Our hearts are grieved for rebellion and wickedness in high places. Our hearts are grieved for sin and death and its consequences for war and, and um, imagine, unimaginable suffering of one man that, against another. Our Lord, don't stand back and allow those things to continue. We pray that you would come, that you would return, that you would vindicate your holy name. And Lord, until that day, would you save and draw sinners to yourself. May you build your church for your name's sake, we ask it. And Lord, help us to be men and women of prayer. Help us to, to be well-rounded in our prayer lives and to trust you and to come again and again and again, ask and seek and knock. May you do that work in our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.